Chapter 5, if you're already there, you're ahead of the curve. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5. I need to warn you. Uh, well, let me say it this way. A lot of people spend time wondering about church growth and how do you make a church grow and doing studies and strategizing about making a church grow and trying to tailor messages so that it causes more people to want to come and so on and so forth. This message uh, is the opposite of that. <laughs> this is a message that we anticipate to cause church attendance to decline <laughs> because this is a message where I get in your face and I throw some elbows this morning. And the, the people that are going to hate this message are, are the Christians that are on the fence. They know the right thing to do, but they're not doing it. They're playing games with God. They're going through the motions. They're Sunday morning Christians. And frankly, there's a lot of you here. Your Christian experience is just Sunday mornings. You just show up and go through the motions, and you want to be spoon-fed, and you want to be forced, and you want to be nurtured, and then you want to go live your life the rest of the week. This message says you can't do that. This message says that there's something incredibly perverted and wrong about that. So for those of you that are living this way, uh, this message is going to be uncomfortable for you. And you're either going to get right or you're not going to come back. So I just want to warn you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that it doesn't pull any punches. Thank you for the author of Hebrews who just under your anointing gave it straight to these Hebrew Christians. Thank you that you love us enough to give it to us straight this morning, Lord. Holy Spirit, we don't want to play church. We don't want to go through the motions. I'd rather be at the beach than do that, Lord. We want the real deal. We want Jesus Christianity. We want transformed lives. We want to be consumed with you, and we want to be on fire for your mission on the coastline, Lord. And so rattle us out of complacency this morning. Don't let us come up with justifications. Don't let us excuse ourselves. But grab a hold of us, Holy Spirit, and rattle us. Wake us up to the reality of spiritual life with you. In the world that we live in, in this antichrist culture, and that you're saying, follow me. Teach us to follow you, Lord. We give you permission now to mess with us, Lord. For those that are saying no, I give you permission on their behalf. Since I'm the one at the pulpit, Lord, I'm asking that you'd mess with them this morning. Wake us up and then do what you intend to do, which is to radically bless us and glorify your name in us. Accomplish that work, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, now here's what's going on in our text. We've been talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and into that picture jumped this guy named Melchizedek. And we spoke a little bit about Melchizedek the next two weeks. But what happens now is that the author of Hebrews realizes that it's going to be hard for his audience to grasp the concept of Jesus and his high priestly ministry as it relates to Melchizedek because they've become dull in their hearing. Because they've become lackadaisical in their spiritual life. They've gotten spiritually lazy. And so he realizes now that it's going to be difficult for them to understand the things that he's saying, but that's not acceptable to him. So he wants to rattle them out of their complacency, out of their dullness, out of their waywardness. And so what we have in the flow of the text now is a parenthetical little teaching on the danger of settling and backsliding. 
It's a major theme of the book because that's a context of the book. He's writing to people who are in danger of falling away from Jesus Christ. But this is the first time where he really lays into it for several verses. And he really lays out the clear consequences of that and gives some very stern warnings and some powerful analogies. And then after this excursus, this uh, little side shoot thing, he's going to go back to Jesus and his high priesthood of Melchizedek in chapter 7. And the breakdown of this parenthetical section looks like this. Here's an outline. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we have the case of arrested development. A case of arrested development. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we have a call to press on toward maturity. A call to press on toward maturity. And then in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, we have a cautionary warning about falling away. We'll get to that next week. And then in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6, the author expresses a confident hope and encouragement to spiritual progress. So, a case of arrested development, a call to press on toward maturity. We'll cover those this week. And then next week, a cautionary warning about falling away and a confident hope of spiritual progress. So let's look in verse 11 now of chapter 5, where the author writes, Concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Concerning him, he's referring to Jesus and Melchizedek, their, their relationship, how Melchizedek prefigured the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in the order of Melchizedek in his priesthood. He's saying, concerning these things, there's a lot more I want to tell you. It's hard to tell you because you're dull. You're dense. We'll explain that in a moment. Verse 12 for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. He says, there's a lot more I want to explain to you about the person of Jesus Christ, but, but I can tell it's going to be hard for you to comprehend because you have become dull of hearing. Let's not misunderstand that. Let, let's get a grasp on that phrase, dull of hearing. He's calling them that to their face. You all are dull of hearing. What does that mean? The Greek word there for dull is nothros. Nothros, and it simply means slothful, slow, lazy, or stupid. That's what it means. Slothful, slow, lazy, or stupid. Now, understand, the idea is not that someone is that way by nature, but rather by choice. Okay, it's not as though they had some uh, natural or inherent intellectual limitations and he's teasing them. That's not what the Bible's doing. It's not people who are limited by nature, but rather by their own decisions. They themselves have chosen to be slothful, slow, lazy, and stupid in spiritual things. You see, the reality is for these Hebrew Christians as well as for us, everything was and everything is in place for us to grow. And for us to grow well. 
And for us to be blessed and to prosper in our Christianity and to be on a continual tract of growth and walking with Jesus Christ, everything is in place. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We've got everything that we need available to us. But you see, what they didn't do was take advantage of what was available to them in their Christianity. And it's coming to a crux now because they're encountering difficult times. That's where the rubber meets the road, you know what I mean? It's okay, not okay, but it's, it's easy to get away with going through the motions when everything is cool. But when the boat starts to rock, you realize, I better have my gig down. I better have my compass calibrated. I better have my engine tuned. I better have, you know, whatever. I better have my gig down when the storm hits. And so now things are coming to a head for them because of the persecution of Nero upon the church. It's getting uncomfortable for them in their culture to be a Christian. It's going to happen to us. It's going to get more and more. The Bible says so. It's going to get more and more uncomfortable to live a legitimate Christian life in this world before the coming of the Lord. And that's what was happening to them. Nero's persecution was making it very difficult, and so they had become dull in hearing. They were not previously dull in hearing. They were previously spiritually alert. Be sober, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and alert in all things, Corinthians says. So they were previously living a vivacious Christian life. No idea what that word means. Sounded so good right there, though, vivacious. Did that work? Smart people, was that cool? (laughs) Sounded so awesome. Let's back up. They were living a vivacious Christian life. But they had made some choices that brought them into a place of being slothful, slow, lazy, and stupid. They had become. They were not previously. They were at one time growing, but now they had stopped growing. Now they had become stunted in their growth. They were experiencing arrested development. Their development as Christians had been arrested. They had stopped going forward. They were now spiritually lazy, slothful, slow, and stupid. The Christian life in reality to a certain degree is an uphill battle. It is a battle, isn't it? Listen, conflict and war is the norm for Christianity. We have peace because of the person of Jesus Christ, but we are in a conflict between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved Son. And if you're an active Christian, then you are actively engaged in that conflict and legitimate Christianity, trying to live a vivacious Christian life is an uphill battle. Nevertheless, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a struggle, but we're not left powerless. It's when we stop struggling, when we stop moving forward, when we get lackadaisical and we settle and we compromise that we get in trouble. That's what had happened. This word doll that I shared with you in the Greek, nothros, comes from two other words in the Greek that mean not and to push. It comes from not and to push. They had stopped pushing forward in their Christianity. They had stopped forging ahead. They were no longer moving forward. They had stopped pushing Truthfully, this is a description of a lot of you. It just is. 
Your walk with Jesus Christ is the last thing that you schedule. It's way down on the list of priorities. Your obedience to the Lord is usually when it just happens or when it's convenient or when it's comfortable. You don't push for righteousness. You don't push for obedience. You don't push to follow. You don't push to be on the mission of God. You settle continually. You have become dull of hearing, slothful, slow, lazy, and stupid in spiritual things. You aren't driven to follow the person of Jesus Christ. Your development has been arrested. Now understand that arrested development is always a pathetic thing. It's really a heartbreaking thing. When you see someone that has gotten to a certain stage and they stop developing, either their body never fully developed, that's a heartbreaking thing, or, or their intellect never developed. That's a tough thing to see. And from the perspective of God, when his children cease to develop, it's a tough thing to lay hold of. It's tough for the father to see. It's heartbreaking, this arrested development, this stunted growth. It's also just pathetic. When you see an adult who is always acting like a child, doing the same things they were doing in junior high and high school, acting the same way, the same silly drama, I mean, you know people like this. You just get over them so quick. You're like, are you kidding me, dude? Just grow up. It's just pathetic when you see an adult who is always acting like a child. We are called to have childlike faith, but that is quite different from being childish. We're to be childlike in our trust toward the Father, in our explicit Non-qualified trust, we're to be childlike toward the Father. In our adoration, we're to be childlike toward the Father. But we're never called to be childish in our faith. We're called to be mature in our faith. Mature and yet childlike. It's a paradox that works so wonderfully in Christianity. But these Christians that this book was written to have lost their desire to push or to drive forward in the relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, things came to a crux because of a moment of difficulty. I don't want to make light of their circumstances. Their circumstances far outweighed anything that I think any of us have experienced. There are some of our brothers and sisters worldwide that are experiencing even worse things, who live under governmental regimes that are oppressive and, and uh, that persecute Christianity. We haven't necessarily experienced that, but... We do experience difficulties, don't we? We all experience difficulties, every single one of us. And here's one of the wonderfully redemptive things about Christianity, is that Jesus redeems our difficulties and makes them useful for our growth. It's one of the cool things that he does by the power of the cross and the working of his Holy Spirit. He redeems the drama of life, the unavoidable tough circumstances, and he'll use them for our growth. Two scriptures come to mind. One is Romans 8, 28, wonderful promise that we all know. God works all, thing to, all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Man, I take that one to the bank in difficult times. The Christian can and should just simply begin to ask, okay, God, how are you going to work this for good? How are you going to redeem this situation? 
Either you were a bonehead and you made a mess or it's just one of those things that happens in life. But the Christian, by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, can come to the Father and say, okay, Father, here's a mess, but how are you going to bring good out of it? Father, here's my ashes. Will you exchange for it some beauty with me? That's what the Lord does. Lord, I'm in a valley of trouble, the valley of Achor from the book of Joshua. Will you open up a door of hope? That's what he does. And that's who he is. And that's what we can do. Another one that comes to mind that I mention frequently from this pulpit is Romans chapter 5. You just recently read it in your one-year Bible reading. In the last couple days, you read Romans 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 3, says this. We exalt in our tribulations. Already that is so contrary to what is intuitive and what is worldly. We exalt, we Christians, whose standing is in grace, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing, here's why, knowing, not hoping, not wondering if, not maybe, not for the other guy, knowing for us that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see how wonderfully redemptive that is? By the work of God, our drama is redeemed and it's turned into hope. In the valley of trouble, he opens up a door of hope. But in the Christian economy, there is a road to hope, and it starts with trials. And that takes us to perseverance, which takes us to proving character, and then hope, and then hope doesn't disappoint because the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. And so when we encounter various trials, we have a different protocol than the world. We have a different approach. We're to have a different mindset. It's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to experience more of the person of Jesus Christ. When I say growth, I just don't mean you sin less or you act more nice or you give more money at church or you go on a mission trip. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about growth, I'm talking about you know the person of Jesus Christ more. That is the goal. Not a bunch of Christian activity. That's never the goal. That's the outflow. The goal is an intimate love affair with the person of Jesus Christ. The outflow is mission. The outflow is ministry. But the goal is just Jesus. And the wonderful opportunity of difficult times is that we press into the person of Jesus Christ, discover more of his heart, experience more of his love, see his wonder-working power in our lives. And in that comes growth and effectiveness, and fruit into our lives. Though that is the opportunity and the possibility, not all Christians lay hold of that. Certainly none of us lay hold of it all the time. I know I don't. But you see, these Christians hadn't laid hold of that possibility. They, they hadn't laid hold of that opportunity. They had simply stopped going forward in the time of difficulty instead of looking for the redemption in it. And that stopping brought about a dulling. They became dull in hearing. And I think we need to ask ourselves, have you become dull in hearing? Have we become dull in hearing? And it's often in those difficult times of life where it happens. Let's be honest, sometimes we get mad at God. 
I dealt with somebody this week that was so mad at God. They were so incredibly mad at God. Their life wasn't going as they planned. Quite frankly, their life sucked at the moment. It's horribly difficult. But instead of looking to God and his redemptive ability, they got mad at God. And so became dull in their hearing. Begin to drift away. Begin to fall in this process of dulling that we're seeing with these. You see, the Christian life is meant to be one of steady forward movement, growth, and maturation. Always going forward. Always growing. Always moving forward. Now let's look at verse 12 as we unpack this a little more. Verse 12 of Hebrews 5. He says to them, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He says to them, You guys have been Christians long enough. And we know from the context and from studying the book, they've been Christians for some time. These were not new converts. Chapter 10 makes that very clear, that they had even experienced tremendous persecution in a time past. He says, you guys have been Christians long enough that by now you should actually be teachers. Now, here's what that does mean and what it doesn't mean. First, what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they were all expected to be pastors or preachers. Not everybody's supposed to be that. That that would be ridiculous. That'd be a nightmare. Can you imagine if 600 preachers in this room all preaching at each other? I myself wouldn't come to church ever again. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. It didn't mean that they're all supposed to be pastor, teachers, or preachers. It did mean that they were to be mature. And in the Greek culture, in the Greek mindset, which is a predominant culture and mindset of the world, when he said that somebody was able to teach, it was saying that they had a mature grasp on the subject. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily called and anointed to teach all the time, but they had a mature grasp on the subject. They were not novices. They were developed. And to develop this even a little further, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Presses it upon us in a little more weighty way than I just gave it to you according to Greek culture. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 24. It says... And the Lord's bondservant, this is you and I, okay, speaking to Christians. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. Did you see that? Able to teach. This is not written to leaders. This is written to every Christian. The whole book was written to a leader, Timothy. But Paul's explaining to Timothy what the church is supposed to look like. And he says those who are members of the church, in the church, are not supposed to be quarrelsome. They're not to be combative or persnickety in nature. I don't know if that's a word either. (laughs) But kind to all and able to teach. Notice, they don't necessarily have to teach, But when called upon to explain the basic truths of the Christian faith, they should be able to do so. Let me put that on you because the Bible puts it on you. 
every Christian must be able to articulate the foundations of the faith. Doesn't mean that you have to be a great teacher. You may not ever be called on to teach. But what if somebody needs help? And their only help is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you articulate to them the basic truths concerning it? It says here, the Lord's bondservant must be able to teach. Look as it unfolds. Patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Notice we have character and protocol, kind to all and gentle, but teaching and correcting, character and protocol, kind to all, gentle, but teaching and correcting. Every Christian must be able to correct those who are in error when it comes to the faith. It doesn't mean we're all going to be great apologists that write books. But when people are casting aspersion on the identity of Jesus Christ, are you able to combat that with some truth? When they're seeking to discount the validity of the scriptures, are you able to give reason, articulate arguments as to why you believe in the validity and historicity of the New Testament? The Bible simply says here, it's our duty to do so. Here's why this is so hard for you. I know it is because I'm looking at 600 faces. Here's why this is so hard for you. Because in the American church, we like clergy to do all the work. That's the general approach in the American church. The general approach is, well, look, you're the pastor. You're the elders. You're the staff. Last time I checked, I was given the money. I figure you work for me. Now you do the work. You see, that, that's business, but that's not Bible. That's business, but that's not Bible. And in the kingdom, we do it according to the Bible. And the Bible teaches that every member is a minister. The Baptists coined that phraseology. God bless them. Every member is, that's right, we got one ex-Baptist sister sitting in the back. God bless her. Every member is a minister. We believe in the priesthood of the saints, as Peter taught in his first epistle, that we are all a royal priesthood serving the person of Jesus Christ, that we are all called into mission. We are all to discern God's mission and engage in God's mission. And as R.T. Kendall said in a book, he said, um... The job of every generation is to discern where the Holy Spirit is moving and get there. What is the Holy Spirit doing on your coastland? What is he doing in your workplace? What is he doing in your family? Get involved with the mission of God because he's working, he's moving, he's doing things around you. Are you involved in the mission? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Look what is at stake here. Look at what is at stake for the American church who says, oh, it's the job of the clergy. It's the place of the pastor. Let somebody else do it. Look what is at stake. The end of verse 25. If perhaps God may grant them, that is those who are in opposition to the faith, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. That is what is at stake. 
That's why we don't have the right or the luxury to say somebody else will do it. Someone else will study their Bible. Somebody else will articulate the faith. Somebody else will go on mission. Somebody else will be a defender of faith. Somebody else will take care of the kids. We don't have a right to say that because there are men and women and boys and girls who are being held captive by Satan to do his will. And his will is to mar humanity, to maim humanity, to blur the image of God in us, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And because that is a condition of humanity apart from Jesus Christ, those who know Jesus Christ don't have the right to say somebody else or some other time is what the author is saying. So they themselves, going back to Hebrews, should have been teachers by now. Instead, they needed somebody to go over the basics with them again. Again, that verse, by this time you ought to be teachers, verse 12 of Hebrews 5. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Elementary principles, a loose translation of that is the ABCs. You guys ought to be teaching these foundational truths, he says. Instead, you need somebody to hold your little hands through the ABCs again. The elementary principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs of the Bible, the ABCs of God's revelation to man. Now, in the next chapter, he goes on to lay out what these ABCs are. It's not all the ABCs of the faith. It's some of the ABCs of the faith. It's the real basic things. Remember that it's looked at from a Jewish context. These were Jewish Christians. The guy writing is a Jewish scholar under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so these ABCs are given to us in language that's very Jewish in flavor. Nonetheless, we can glean these are some of the ABCs of the Christian faith that we're responsible for knowing. So let's Skip ahead to chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching, the ABCs about the Messiah, the Christ, let us press on toward maturity. Let us press on toward maturity. Not laying again a foundation, okay, foundation, here it comes, of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instructions about washings or baptisms, and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, press on toward maturity, if God permits. God willing, we're going to continue to see you guys grow in maturity, he says. But let's not get caught up on the ABCs. You guys should have the stuff by now, he's saying to them. The first thing that he mentions that is a fundamental truth, uh, or he calls it this rather, the elementary teaching about the Christ. That's the first point in verse 1 there. The elementary teaching about the Messiah. In other words, the identity and the work of the person of Jesus Christ. That's foundational to Christianity. If you're a Christian, you need to know the correct identity and the scope of the work of the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he says is foundational is repentance from dead works. Dead works are the works of the Mosaic law by which no person could be saved. He's reminding them that they were once under the law and they tried to be righteous, but now because of the work of the righteous, they've been... uh, That was weird. Because of the work of the (laughs) righteous? Trip out. Now because of the work of the cross, 
They have been made righteous. It's no longer trying to be righteous. Now they've been made righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. And so he's telling them, don't, don't go back to repentance of dead works. These are foundation things. Repent of dead works once and for all. Don't get caught up in religion, but recognize the work of the cross. The other thing that's foundational is faith toward God. He's speaking there of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Foundational, okay? So, so far, what's foundational is the identity and the work of Jesus Christ, the fact that we cannot work our way to heaven, and the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. Any Christian should be able to articulate those things to a non-believer. And then the fourth thing that he mentions is washings. He, of course, in this context, would have had some of the ritual washings that they did informally as Jews in mind, but the New Testament correspondence for us is baptism. The fact that a Christian needs to be baptized, the fact that water baptism is our identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and furthermore, that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Foundational things. And then laying on of hands. Foundational, he says. That's the practice of our salvation. We lay hands on people when we send them into ministry. We see that in the book of Acts. We lay hands on people for healing. We see Jesus doing that repeatedly. And we lay hands on people to impart uh, ministry and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts and in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, this is foundational to the Christian faith, that people are going to be going out on mission, that people are going to be getting healed, that people are going to be getting commissioned. So we practice the laying on of hands. Furthermore, he talks about the resurrection from the dead. That is our future hope of salvation, that there is a resurrection, that we will be bodily resurrected as Jesus Christ was. This is a foundational tenet of the historic Christian faith, that we are looking forward to a resurrection. The Jews know it. That's why when you go to Israel, when you're on the hills surrounding Jerusalem and there's Jewish graves, every one of those Jewish graves has a foot of the grave facing toward the eastern gate of the Temple Mount. Because the book of Zechariah says that when Jesus comes, when Messiah comes, they don't know he's Jesus, when Messiah comes, he will come to the eastern gate. At that time will be the resurrection of the dead, they believe, and so they're buried with their feet facing the gate so that when Messiah comes, they just go, whoop-boing, hey. <laughs> now, whether or not it's going to work out like that, I don't know, but that's faith. That's foundational to them. We are going to be resurrected. By the way, it's not only a resurrection for the righteous, but there's a resurrection for the wicked. Revelation chapter 20, where they're judged. And then finally, eternal judgment. What our salvation delivers us from. Foundational. That there is a judge and there is judgment. Now, those are the basics. The identity of Christ. Can't get there by work. Salvation by grace through faith. Baptism. Laying on of hands for ministry. The resurrection from the dead. The hope of our future. And eternal judgment. Those are the ABCs. What's weird is for much of the church, that's considered college level. Much of the church is like, really? There's a resurrection? I mean, I figure we become angels with wings. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Really? I mean, is there really a literal hell? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
For many Christians, those things are never even reached or thought of. They seem college level. What's even worse is that for much of the church in America and in Europe, they're throwing these things out altogether. The identity of Jesus Christ is being compromised on. The historicity of his resurrection from the dead. The need for repentance. It's so unpopular in churches today to call people to repent. But it's a foundational truth of the Christian faith that we need to repent. A literal hell. So much of the church is abandoning that now in the name and the vein of liberalism. And yet it's foundational. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? He didn't want anybody to go there. And so he warned people. And what is troublesome about the church is that for those who do believe these things, it seems to be college level, but worse, many don't any longer believe these things. Where the church should be grasping things as foundational and then moving on in God's mission, we're not even grasping. And so this can become kind of a litmus test then for those of us who have been Christians for some time and for churches in general. Are you or is your church able to and doing this, correctly identifying the person in the work of Jesus Christ, preaching, teaching, practicing repentance, baptizing because we're on God's mission and people are getting saved, looking for the baptism in the Holy Spirit because we want to be on God's program, sending people out into ministry, anointing people for healing, asking the Lord for spiritual gifts, looking forward to our resurrection, which denotes his second coming, warning people of hell. These are bare minimum for Christianity. The point is not that we ever progress beyond talking about these things or that we never need to be taught again, but the point should be this, that we need to be comprehending, grasping, assimilating, and applying what we've been taught. That's what they failed to do. Use it or lose it is the old phraseology. They weren't using it, and so they were losing it. And if they're not practicing those things, if they're not even able to articulate those things, then what they were is stuck in elementary school. Now, there's nothing wrong with elementary school if you're supposed to be there. And some people, as Christians, are in elementary school. You've just been Christians for a little while. That's great. You're supposed to be in elementary school. It would be weird if you were in college. Do you ever have one of those kids, like one of those geniuses, and you show up at City College, and there's like a nine-year-old in your <laughs> statistics class? Gee whiz. So weird. Just weird. So it'd be weird if they were in college, but it'd be weird if the 36-year-old is in third grade. <laughs> Equally as weird. Elementary school is cool if you're supposed to be there. But if you're an adult still in the third grade... Something is wrong. Now remember, he's not saying that any of this was according to their nature. They didn't have intellectual limitations. It was by choice. And so now I want to make it very personal. This is, this is why people are going to leave the church. I think as a church, we need to take stock a little bit. I can't speak to those who are just new coming to this church. As far as I know, you're cool. But those of us that have been around for a little while, He's busting the Hebrews on having heard foundational truths and never assimilating them into their lives. Okay, a while ago we had a prayer series. 
13 teachings on the biblical perspective of prayer. Has your prayer life been affected since that time? You need to take stock. Some time ago, we went through the book of Joshua. Walking in the promises of God. Experiencing the victory of God. Since then, have you become more proficient in walking in God's promises? Have you experienced more of the victory of God? We recently got through Hebrews chapter 1 where we spent weeks on the person and the identity of Jesus Christ. Have you come to a deeper appreciation, love, and awe for the person of Jesus Christ from Hebrews chapter 1? If none of these things have happened, then you've been hearing and not doing. If there's been no measurable change in your life, no slow, steady progress, slow is fine. I'm the slowest growing fool you know. Slow is fine. But if there's been no growth, then you are dull of hearing. Your development has been arrested. You're merely a hearer of the word, not a doer. And James chapter 1 verse 22 says you delude yourself. Because you come and you sit in church and you listen to sermons and you do nothing about it. You're deluded. And so what he says to them in this verse, chapter, or chapter 5 verse 12, is that they had come to need milk and not solid food. That's the analogy that he's going to employ here. They had come to need milk and not solid food. It's right and good for a baby to nurse. It's really wrong for grown-ups to nurse. It's right and good for a baby to have a bottle. It's really weird for a 17-year-old to have a bottle. <laughs> Happens occasionally, but it's not good. I mean, something is seriously wrong when somebody should be eating meat and they're still on the bottle. And that was a condition of these Hebrew Christians. Arrested development, a real problem. And they hadn't always been that way. You have come to need milk. You see, they were backslidden. There was a time where they were partaking in the weightier things. They were chewing on the meat of the word of God and the things of God. You have come to need milk. The tense is such that they had digressed into the state of going back to the bottle. Uh, there was a Puritan preacher, his name was Richard Baxter, and he had a work called Directions for Profitably Hearing the Word Preached. In other words, how to get the most out of a sermon. Here's what he said. Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister. It's old language, but do you get it? Cast not all upon the minister as those that will go no further than they are carried by force. Don't look to be spoon-fed. Don't rely upon a minister for your spiritual well-being or nourishment. You have work to do as well as the preacher. And should all the time be as busy as he. You see, there's a problem with so much of the American church. We want to pay our preachers to study so that we don't have to. It's not Christianity. 
That's not real. That's delusion. That's broken. That's wrong. You must open your mouths and digest it, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing as much as you would abhor an idle minister. You guys would be, in, you guys would be so upset if I came up on a Sunday morning and said, oh, hey guys, good to see you. Gosh, I had the busiest week and there's surf this week. There's a little south swell and the sun finally came out in the afternoon a couple of days and you know, I just didn't really get around to studying the Bible this week. So I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say, guys. I'll just kind of, you know, whatever. Tell me you wouldn't be okay with that. Why are you okay with it with you? Why do you have a double standard? Why would you absolutely not accept me negating my Christian responsibility, God's calling on my life, but you so easily shirk your own? That, my friends, is called hypocrisy. That is called hypocrisy. You are hypocrites. You have as much of a responsibility to handle accurately the word of God as I do. R. Kent Hughes says, as we hear God's word, we ought to keep our Bible open and follow the textual argument. Look up the references mentioned. Take notes. Identify the theme. List the subpoints and applications and ask God to help us see exactly where he wants us to apply the scriptures being teached. Billy Graham said the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. What he meant was the church in America is fat with sermons and emaciated with action. And if we don't have that sort of aggressive approach, then it's very easy for us to become dull in hearing. And when we become dull in hearing, then we limit ourselves to perpetual infancy. And we find ourselves in the place of needing milk. Their refusal to grow, their lazy approach to spirituality, created in them a serious deficiency, a brokenness, a perversion, an anomaly. Like an adult that needs milk from a bottle. An anomaly. An anomaly is something which deviates from that which is standard, normal, and expected. What is standard, normal, and expected in Christianity? That you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. What is abnormal? That your growth is stunted. What doesn't meet expectations? What's an anomaly? That you cease to grow, that you become dull of hearing. It's wrong. It's broken. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because he's a baby. So the writer's been very explicit as to who remains a spiritual infant. So how do we know if I'm stuck in being dull of hearing? How do I know if I'm stuck in infancy? Well, let's make it objective and not subjective. Okay, it can't be subjective anymore because if you're like me, you're sitting around thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. This message is for them. They would be so busted. Or you're thinking, is it me? I don't know. Can I, I can't tell. Am I, am I dull of hearing? Let's make it objective. How do we know who's a spiritual infant and who's not? Well, here's who's mature. Those who integra integrate, integrate 
doctrine and duty. You integrate doctrine and duty. You're concerned about what the Bible has to say, and you're passionate about living it. That's maturity. Anything less is immaturity. It's infancy. It's elementary. It's stunted. It's truncated. It's abnormal. It's an anomaly. It's not okay. What's normal? Right teaching, right living. They were concerned with the Word of God and that we're passionate about living it. Warren Wiersbe, in a book called The Strategy of Satan, says, Satan enjoys seeing Christians get a head knowledge of victory without a hard experience. Because this lulls believers into a false security. And Satan finds them an easy prey. It is not the reading of truth or even the enjoying of truth that brings a blessing. It is the doing of the truth. So now it's very objective. The mature Christian integrates doctrine and duty. The ultimate test of Christian maturity and validity is obedience. There's no way to soft pedal that. Jesus said, if you love me, you want some hard proof that you love me? Because there's lots of people saying, I love the Lord. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. He said, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. The ultimate test of maturity is the way that we obey the Lord. It's not what we do, not how much we do. It's not about our ministry. It's not how loud we sing or how high we lift our hands or what spiritual gifts we have. It's how well we obey the King. It says here that everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Not accustomed is also translated unskilled in. They're not, a, they're not skilled in the word of righteousness or they're not acquainted with the word of righteousness. Unskilled literally means not tested. You see, the baby lacks the ability to make sound decisions. The baby lacks the ability to make sound decisions. So the person that is immature has no successful experience in applying the scriptures to problem solving in their life. They've never endeavored to live biblically, to think biblically, to see biblically, to act biblically. They haven't processed biblically. Their decisions are based on pragmatism, not biblicism. They're concerned with what is practical, not with what is holy. They look for what suits them, not what honors God. And because of that mindset, they remain in a place of spiritual immaturity, their development arrested. It's not for lack of ability, it's for want of integrity. Therefore, that person needs to be told what to do and how to do it just like a child. And then they need to be coerced or cajoled or bribed or enticed to follow through, just like a child. You see, but the mature Christian makes biblical decisions for his or herself and is accountable to the word of God and the spirit of God when it comes to follow through. They don't have to have their hands held. They're able to discern biblically how to deal with life and they have follow through because then they've made themselves accountable to God. And the last verse, verse 14, 
But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The mature Christian can handle solid food. In other words, the Holy Spirit can guide them into Scripture, and from it they can draw wisdom for living. Solid food. They can draw wisdom for living from the Scriptures. They can grasp doctrine and make decisions. Doctrine and duty are integrated. They can grasp doctrine and make decisions. You don't want just one of those. You don't want just doctrine and bad decisions. You don't want to make decisions without having right doctrine. They can grasp doctrine. They can make decisions. They are described in 2 Timothy 2.15. They handle accurately the word of God and they need not be ashamed because they present themselves before God approved as a workman handling the word of God. Their senses, it says, are trained by the word of God. The mature Christian has a capacity to make intelligent biblical decisions. Notice, I didn't say they were necessarily intelligent. Not everybody is. But because they're keen to obey Jesus Christ, they're able to make intelligent biblical decisions by the Spirit of God in them. The mature Christian recognizes the mistakes of the past and has a good sense to learn from them. They're not always struggling with the same things. They're not always going back like a dog returns to its vomit, it says in Proverbs. There's a growth, there's a moving out, there's a maturity, there's a going ahead, there's a taking the land, there's walking in the promises. The mature Christian appreciates the relevance of the written word of God to his contemporary culture. He has an acute sensitivity for a godly lifestyle. He's cultivated a sense of caution and the presence of moral danger. This describes nobody I know better than my wife. A keen sense of caution and the sense of moral danger. I'll be like, well, what's wrong with that? And my wife is like grabbing the kids and running. Come on, kids! I'm like, what's the big deal? She's like, oh, God, have mercy. Come, kids. The reason being, she's incredibly mature in her walk with Jesus Christ. She wants nothing more than to please him. She's desperate to please the Lord. And so she's very morally aware in situations. Man, I envy that in her. The mature Christian can discern between good and evil. It doesn't mean necessarily discerning between the broad gulf between general good and general evil. It means this. It's saying that the mature Christian can distinguish between good results and bad results in light of a decision that is yet to be made. They can think biblically. They can think prayerfully. They can look ahead and they could discern between what would be good results or bad results of a decision that lays before them. They have their senses trained for godly living. And so it says in chapter 6, verse 1, let us press on toward maturity. Notice the language, church. We must press on. Don't give in today. Don't give up. I started this message by saying some of you will never come back. I really really hope that wasn't true. 
I hope instead you'll decide to press on, to push on toward maturity. We've got to understand that in the Christian life, we are either moving forward or we're falling back. We're either climbing or falling, winning or losing. Static status quo Christianity is a delusion. You can't settle. You can't just stay. You will fall if you become dull. So stay sharp. Stay focused. Press into the person of Jesus Christ. Push on toward maturity. And watch him bless you in your life. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to spank us, Lord. This has been a really hard message to give. Partly because I'm guilty like everybody else and partly because I just love these brothers and sisters here. But the word of God is profitable for teaching, for training, but also for correcting and rebuking. Thank you for correcting and rebuking and for training and teaching. Holy Spirit, anything that was said that's not from you, not from you would you just cause it to just disappear? But everything that's from you, force us to deal with it, Lord. Show us where we become dull, where we're undiscerning, where we've settled, where we're failing, where we're falling, and help us, Lord. Thank you that you've not left us alone, but you come to our aid. Lord, I ask that, as this message has been gnarly and much has been said, I ask that people be free from condemnation, because that's not from you. But we do want to be convicted because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to be busted. We all need to be busted. But we all need help, Lord. So help us to follow hard after you. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want you, Lord, but forgive our lack of want. Teach us to want you more. Become bigger in our hearts, Lord. Turn down the volume of our own lives and increase the presence of your beauty in our world. Brothers and sisters, if you need help, get help this morning. The prayer team is there in number. If you're tripping, go ahead and pray for you.